You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. Global News has learned some startling details about the suspect arrested in a triple stabbing yesterday. The attack happened just as the light up Chinatown event was wrapping up. Terrifying witnesses and marring a festival that's seen as key to the community's revival. Kristen Robinson joins us live with more. And Kristen, you've learned the 64-year-old suspect has a long history of violence. That's right, Sophie. There are concerns and questions as to why the suspect, a psychiatric patient with serious mental health issues, was free in the community. Meantime, Chinatown's leaders remain shaken but determined. For two days, Light Up Chinatown celebrated the community's spirit and resolve during challenging times. It's heartwarming to see so many people here. Organizers feeling a sense of hope with support from all three levels of government. But the third annual event ended with heartbreak and devastation when three attendees were stabbed by a stranger. Very personal. Yeah, we'd worked very hard to put this festival on, to bring community together. We'll be undeterred. Police say the victims, all Asian, were attacked near the festival's stage just before 6 p.m. Sunday. A Burnaby couple in their 60s and a Vancouver woman in her 20s seriously injured. A 64-year-old suspect was quickly arrested on the downtown east side. The VPD says he was on a day pass from a local psychiatric facility. Police are reviewing statements made by the suspect on scene and to investigators in order to determine whether this was a hate crime. I can't tell you that today, uh, what the actual motive was and what was in the mind of this person when they acted the way they did. So I got shot to the community as well. Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim and his council standing behind Chinatown. We're not giving up. We're not giving up on this community whatsoever. Blair Evan Donnelly has been charged with three counts of aggravated assault and remains in custody. In 2008, Donnelly was detained to the Forensic Psychiatric Hospital in Port Coquitlam when he was found not criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder in the November 2006 stabbing death of his 16-year-old daughter in Kitimat. The vast majority of people in community with mental health issues don't have any interaction with the police whatsoever and they function well. But there are some people in our community that don't function well and are a danger to the general public. And this person is one of those people, apparently. So I do have a lot of concerns when somebody of that nature is out roaming around, not just anywhere in our community. Why Donnelly was out on a day pass is unclear. Chinatown's leaders say their thoughts are with the victims of this senseless attack in a neighborhood known for its resilience. You can't let something like this be the mark that stops you. You know, it'll take us time to sort of regroup, but we'll come back stronger. Kristen, what do we know about the suspect's status now? When will he be back in court? Sophie, Blair Evan Donnelly remains in custody tonight ahead of a bail hearing in Vancouver Provincial Court on Friday. His first appearance this afternoon was put over. All right, thanks for that. Kristen Robinson live in Chinatown tonight. Well, as you heard, the man charged in this stabbing incident has a long history of violence, including being found not criminally responsible for killing his own daughter. Ramina Dea has more on Blair Donnelly's past. God wanted him to kill his 16-year-old daughter, according to the explosive details in the court record. It was November 2006 in Kitimat, B.C. Blair Evan Donnelly's wife feared for her safety. Her husband 
acting strangely. She warned their pastor that Donnelly had been admitted to a psychiatric hospital 10 years earlier after having religious delusions. Then on the 23rd of November, Mr. Donnelly went to the kitchen and grabbed the same knife he had carried earlier. He stabbed his daughter Stephanie several times, first in the chest and then in the neck. The violence and brutality is apparent, said the judge. After the vicious attack, Donnelly went to church and prayed. On January 23, 2008, a judge found Donnelly not criminally responsible due to mental disorder in the second-degree murder of his daughter. He was sent to the forensic psychiatric hospital in Coquitlam. In 2009, Donnelly was before the courts again, this time in Surrey, the file currently sealed. But according to an old media report, the BC Review Board granted Donnelly unescorted leave and a violent incident involving a weapon took place. Fast forward to today, when Vancouver's police chief confirmed Donnelly was out on a day pass when he allegedly stabbed three people in an unprovoked attack at a family event in Chinatown Sunday night. BC's former Attorney General Barry Penner has lobbied Ottawa in the past to change the criminal code to make it more difficult for killers who've been found not guilty due to mental illness to be released into the community. The public has a right to be protected against random acts of horrendous violence, uh, sometimes resulting in, in loss of life of children or, or just, again, other innocent people. The BC Review Board refusing to do an on-camera interview, saying it doesn't comment on specific cases. The board, however, did confirm that an order was made in Donnelly's case in April of this year. One of the conditions, any access into the community, whether escorted or unescorted, was up to the discretion of the director. Romina Dea, Global News. Well, the Light Up Chinatown Festival was started three years ago to help celebrate the community's history and the ongoing and admittedly difficult process of revitalization. And tonight, community leaders are vowing they won't let the violence overshadow all of the progress that's being made. Krista Dow reports. Monday morning in Chinatown and it's business as usual. Despite shock and sadness, shop owners are steadfast in forging ahead after a joyous weekend turned violent. Everyone was so happy and then it's so sad to end it on this note where three people were hurt. The success of the Light Up Festival, a clear sign of the progress amid the years-long work in reviving Chinatown. Sunday's triple stabbing attack, a major setback in all that's been accomplished. But community leaders say Chinatown has always persevered. Well, I don't think we should let an incident like this frame, uh, you know, Chinatown. There's lots of uh, visitors still. And, uh, you know, really this could have happened anywhere else in the city. And I felt like we were really turning a point. And, you know, this festival was uh, significant of that. It's not, not ever going to be perfect, but, you know, we're going to keep pushing forward like we always do. The historic neighborhood has grappled with a myriad of issues over the years, from anti-Asian racism during the pandemic to widespread vandalism and crime. But in the past year or so, businesses say they're seeing change on the horizon. We are making progress and it is getting better, but it, it's also an uphill battle as well. You can't just lie down and uh, whatever we've been doing the past however long, obviously isn't working. That's really all we can do is just take, kind of take it day by day. Um, every day is sort of changing. 
but a complete revitalization won't come overnight, they say, nor will Sunday's violence undo all that work. Still, support is desperately needed from those outside Chinatown. We need people to come and shop and eat, right? Like, Chinatown belongs to all of us, and we all have a part in making sure that it thrives. Um, we always come back, and we will continue to come back. Vowing to keep the lights on in times of darkness. Krista Dow, Global News. An unwelcome start to the school year in the Okanagan, where a racial slur was added to a school's welcome back sign. The sign at Summerland Secondary School was altered overnight to include the slur. It has since been removed, but was described as violent, disturbing and intolerable. Having something like that, um, welcoming them back to school, is it, it's, it's violence. And... Um, it, it's something that uh, there, are, there are people working against, but racism is a bit insidious. We're really disturbed to see that kind of message. Uh, we also know that we need to move forward and acknowledge that uh, our school environments work and our educators work extremely hard to welcome all students and have them all feel included and welcome in our school communities. So we'll continue to focus on that as we move forward from this really unfortunate incident. Police have been made aware of the incident and say an investigation is underway. A Coquitlam man is suing the RCMP over a bizarre incident at his home more than a year ago. As Catherine Urquhart reports, it all started with a traffic violation ticket and led to an unexpected visit by two officers at a most inopportune moment. There have been no apologies, no contact, nothing. Kirk Forbes continues to process what happened to him last year after exiting his shower. As I come out, open the door, and wow, right there, right as close as you are to me, I'm face to face with a dark figure um, in my house, and I'm standing here naked. The Coquitlam father of two says he soon learned there was also a second intruder in his house. Instincts took over immediately, and I'm just about to tackle, and... As I did that, I saw the RCMP uniform. The two Coquitlam RCMP officers said they were in his house to serve him a traffic violation ticket from 2021. Forbes says he was never pulled over for the alleged violation in Pemberton. I asked, well, forget all that. How, how, why are you in my house? Do you have a search warrant? What the heck is going on? They said, well, we knocked on the door and the door flung open. Later, he attended the Coquitlam detachment to file a complaint and says he suffered further humiliation. The gentleman behind the counter said, oh, you're the shower guy. And I kind of looked at him and went, what? <laughs> so immediately I just start thinking, oh, that's this is interesting. So now my very private case, uh, which has been very distressing for me, has now become water jug banter at the RCMP hall. Forbes has filed a lawsuit alleging RCMP members John Doe and Jane Doe voluntarily entered the plaintiff's dwelling house without legal right or the plaintiff's consent, knowledge or permission. It also states RCMP members Jane Doe and John Doe abused their lawful authority and powers, thus violating the plaintiff's fundamental rights. Section 8 of the Charter ensures that everyone is entitled to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. You were saying that you think it's important that Canadians know about what happened. Why? I think Canadians need to know that this is happening in our country and it absolutely should not. This is my safe place. Coquitlam RCMP 
declined to comment. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Surrey's mayor admits it's costing taxpayers close to $8 million a month to have two police forces, prompting renewed calls for the city to complete its transition to the SPS. But as Janet Brown reports, Brenda Locke says it's not the city, it's the province that's delaying the transition. Well, I think the city needs to show some leadership. We need to be driving it. After all, it's the taxpayers' money. Councillor Linda Annis says a staff report going to council on the police transition is disappointing because she says it reflects a serious lack of urgency to get the transition done quickly. Right now, it's costing us $266,000 each and every day while we delay in terms of moving this forward. The mayor says the staff report going before council shows the delay is not the fault of the city, but the province failing to provide clear direction. We're waiting for the province to uh, explain their vision, their plan moving forward. The mayor says she sent half a dozen letters to the province since July 20th, looking for answers on what comes next. I have regularly been trying to correspond with the uh, province and we haven't heard back from any of those letters. Our key question in the letter is what is the plan? What is the path forward? The public safety says there is a plan and he expects the full transition to take at least the next 18 months to two years. My staff and the city staff and the RCMP have been working diligently and I expect that, that will pick up uh, now that uh, the, uh, you know, the summer season is over. In the meantime, as seven new constables begin training for work at the Surrey Police Service, the SPS says the position and purpose of the Surrey Police Service is public safety. SPS is fully prepared to advance the policing transition. We are working collaboratively with all stakeholders to determine the important next steps. At the same time, Surrey RCMP Assistant Commissioner Brian Edwards says the RCMP is awaiting plans for a path forward that would outline key areas still required for the policing transition. Keeping two police agencies up and running is costing Surrey taxpayers $8 million a month. Janet Brown, Global News. That's a lot of money, and Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the back and forth. We've heard this before, Keith, and... You just got your hands on some interesting polling the province did back in April. What does it reveal? Yeah, we've long suspected the government's been polling on this well before the decision was announced in July. And sure enough, been asking for these poll results for some time. Finally got them today. It can show exactly why the government went the way it did. So here's polling from uh, mid-April. 337 residents were polled in Surrey. 25% strongly agree or moderately agree with the, the thoughts on the RCMP transition to SPS. 49% of that moderately disagree. 13% strongly disagree. 36% unsure. 26%. Now you can look at this is say, wait, 49% say they don't want to go to the SPS. But you drill down a little further there, it's that number there, strongly disagree, 36%. That means about one-third of the electorate has strong opinions of this in terms of a negative towards SPS, which is why I think it gave the government some comfort here that by going the SPS way, it was not alienating a majority of the voters in Surrey. Again, only one-third have strong views negatively towards SPS. The rest are either a sort of opposed or can live with it. And I think the government made their decision based based on that rationale back on that poll back in April. Sounds like it. Keith, thank you very much.
Well, some welcome news for residents of the South Okanagan as a major route has partially reopened. Highway 97 north of Summerland has been reopened to single lane alternating traffic almost a week earlier than had been expected. The highway was closed by a rock slide August 28th, but the Transportation Ministry says the combination of a block wall and a berm have stabilized the slope enough to allow them to open one lane. Drivers can still expect delays, though. There's still no timeline on when the entire highway will reopen. You've seen the widespread devastation in Morocco, and it's hitting very close to home for many British Columbians. As search and rescue crews comb through the crumbled remnants of hundreds of buildings, what a local chef has learned about the disaster in his home country and the best way for you to help. That's next on the News Hour. The winner of the 2023 PE Prize Home revealed live right here just a little later on the news hour. And the bubble breakthrough, a potential game changer in diabetes treatment. That's still to come. Right now, though, the death toll from the earthquake in Morocco now tops 2,800. And BC's Moroccan community is asking people to donate to international agencies coordinating badly needed relief. As Grace Key reports, they're hearing horrendous stories of devastating family losses from their former hometowns. At Motaco Moroccan restaurant in Yaletown, the head chef's hometown is near the epicenter of Friday's deadly quake. His family is safe, but he knows many who have perished in the small villages of the high Atlas Mountains. <laughs> Oh, they, they died. Yeah. Because the, the beauty is tiny. Oh, houses there are built from the soil. So just they leave it like that to print tourists so they take photo with this very old house. The 6.8 magnitude quake is the strongest to hit Morocco in more than a century. Many of the hardest hit areas are in remote mountain villages that are not easily accessible. Mm. Oh, he said he knows and he what what get him in heart more that those kids like five years, ten years, that they lost all their brother and parents, though they stayed just alone. On Sunday evening, the Moroccan House Association of BC organized an event at the Vancouver Art Gallery to stand in solidarity with the earthquake victims. My family um, is not from that part of the country. Uh, they did feel the, uh, the, the they, felt, they felt it and um, they were out in the street for three hours four hours but we do I do know about uh, a lady actually who who has lost family members unfortunately um, not just one not three in a row there are a number of ways you can help with recovery and relief efforts that includes the Red Cross Red Crescent the United Nations Children's Fund and Doctors Without Borders is also sending teams to provide support the owners at Multaka know restaurant owners back home in Marrakesh who are getting food to those in need. I'm glad that we are Moroccan because we are very solidarity, like they help each other. Grace Key, Global News. Up next, the Premier gets a tour of B.C.'s fire-ravaged communities, pitching a provincial task force to find a better way to respond to emergencies like this. And the province puts a cap on rental increases, the limit landlords will have to live with.
Good evening and some good news here in Surrey. Final clearing stages of a multi-vehicle accident eastbound on Highway 17 east of the Portman Bridge. Kermat Collision and Auto Glass's newest location is in Vancouver on Southwest Marine Drive, conveniently located between Camby and Oak. Kermac, the most trusted name in collision repair for 50 years. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash on Highway 17 in Surrey. Well, we can't forget, BC is still in the midst of a record-breaking wildfire season with thousands of residents under evacuation alerts or orders and 170 fires classified as out of control. Hundreds of properties have been lost, and as Premier David Eby tours some of the fire zones today, he's striking up a new task force to find a better way to handle emergencies like this. Aaron MacArthur has the details and the reaction. From the air, the scope of the damage is clear. Premier David Eby getting an overview of the aftermath of the fire around Shuswap Lake. Everything seems to be getting a little bit more. At the emergency reception center in Salmon Arm, meeting people displaced by the flames. Pearl Rasmussen lost her barn and most of her farm equipment. The fire department saved my house, thank goodness, but just barely. Did you stay yep. behind and protect it? No, I prior to was getting her out of there. Oh my God. This year, the damage from wildfire surpassed all-time records. Nearly 22,000 square kilometers have been burned. Tens of thousands of people put on evacuation order. Hundreds of homes lost. The premier announcing a new task force Monday to help better manage the risk and improve on the resources needed to fight wildfires. The goal here with the task force is that we get those independent voices outside of government uh, that assist us in identifying what we can be doing better, but that that work is integrated with the public service, with the wildfire service, with the emergency response teams. Government reviews are nothing new to BC, going back two decades to when the Okanagan Mountain Park fire destroyed hundreds of homes in Kelowna. Successive fire seasons and successive governments have had similar high-level reviews. Experts say the task force is a good first step. This task force may come up with some excellent recommendations. We need to implement those recommendations. While climate change is front and center for the increased aggressive fire behavior, critics also point to decades of practices that have led to high-value commercial trees being prioritized over healthy forests. Experts say a shift in practices to move away from monocultured forests will make them more resilient. But having greater resilience to hot, dry summers and absolutely being more resilient to wildfires when they are occurring. A new fire in Oliver, a vivid reminder that fire season isn't over yet. The task force makeup and terms of reference have yet to be determined. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. And here's a startling statistic that puts the current wildfire situation in perspective. Mike Flanagan says more of B.C. has been burned by fires in the past seven years since 2017 than was burned in the 58 years combined before that. For the second year in a row, the B.C. government has set the maximum allowable rent increase below the rate of inflation. Renters in the province will face a maximum hike of 3.5% in 2024. That's up from the 2% allowed this year, but well below the average monthly inflation rate of 5.6%. According to Rentals.ca, the average rent for a one-bedroom in Vancouver has climbed to $3,000 just above it, with rent for a two-bedroom topping $3,900, by far the highest in the country. 
Up ahead, tiny bubbles with a big impact. We can encapsulate the drug of interest in one of these bubbles. They're very small. Researchers come around to a breakthrough in type 1 diabetes treatment. But first, we're going to draw the winner of the PE Prize Home live on the news hour. You better be near your phone. Good evening and some good news over here for northbound traffic at the Queensboro Bridge just recently cleared a stall northbound at the south end in the left lane. How low can they go at Buy Low Foods? They go way low. Stock up and save big when you buy more of select products only at Buy Low Foods. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One over at the Queensboro Bridge. All right, the peonies wrap for another year, and today is the day all those prize home ticket holders have been waiting for. That's right, it's time for the PE prize home draw. We're going to do it live right here. So let's listen in and find out who's going to win the big grand prize a brand new home in Langley. Take it Good away. Good evening, British Columbia. I'm Shelley Frost, president and CEO of the PE, and we are ready to draw the winning ticket of the 2023 PE prize home. I would now like to invite Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim to pull the winning ticket. Mr. Mayor. All right. Make sure I don't Again. fall in here. Once the mayor pulls the winning ticket, he will read the ticket number out loud for verification. All right, the number is 323-5644. That's 323-5644. That winning ticket is now being authenticated by our lottery officials, and then we're going to phone the winner. So if you bought a ticket to the 2023 p lottery this year and your phone is ringing, we hope you'll take that call. While we're getting the winner on the phone, I want to recognize our team of staff for their great work this summer. And I also want to thank British Columbians for their incredible support of the 2023 p Fair. Earlier today, we gave away some incredible prizes, three Chevrolet and two Cadillac vehicles, two Holland American cruises, cash, five cash prizes totaling $50,000, a, a travel trailer from Woody's RV World, a Harley Davidson Sportster motorcycle, and a hot tub package from Beachcover Hot Tub Group. And earlier today, this year's 50-50 winner was a group that I got to speak with. Their names were Ted and Kathy Hurt from Campbell River, BC, and I got to share with them that they were the winners of over $891,000 from our total 50-50 jackpot of just over $1.78 And all of the excitement has built up to this moment, the draw for the 2023 grand prize package. This luxurious craftsman-style home is located in Langley. It was built by Lansdowne Homes in collaboration with Westmont Homes, and it features furnishings throughout by Yaletown Interiors. This year's home features a Scandinavian aesthetic and offers five bedrooms and five and a half baths. It has a modern kitchen, a rec room, and a listening lounge. And the home also includes a one bedroom, one bath legal basement suite. So thank you to everybody who supported us by buying a lottery ticket, by coming to Playland, and by coming out to support our PE Fair. Thank you all. We can't wait to see you this fall at our annual Halloween Fright Nights event or second annual PE Winter Fair.
I'm going to ask Mr. Mayor to join me because we have the winner on the phone. Good evening. Is this Mark Zappa from New West, BC, New West, British Columbia? It is. Mark, my name is Shelley Frost. I'm the president and CEO of the PE, and I'm here with Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. And oh. we're here to say a huge congratulations. congratulations. You are the winner of the 2023 PE Prize Home Grand Prize Home. Woo. Woo. I can hardly believe that. <laughs> Mark, oh did, my gosh. Did you buy your tickets online or did you buy them in person? Uh, it was in person at a, at a mall in New Westminster. Hey, that's fantastic. I bet you're sure glad you bought those lottery tickets this year. Yes. Um, am I awake right now? I, yeah. mean, I don't know <laughs> if you told me, yeah. but I still believe it. Yep. Wow. This, Pinch yourself. Oh my gosh. So question for you, Mark. Okay. This, is this yeah. the first time you bought a ticket or you, have you been uh, buying them for years? I've been buying them off and on for years. Maybe every second time I'd go to the PE. So, well, yeah, this was a, a good year up. for you to buy them, Mark. This was a very oh. good year for you to buy them. You are oh, now my. the proud owner of a $2.3 million grand prize package of the 2023 PE Prize Home located out in Langley. I, bet, wow. I, I can't even imagine what that feels like to receive that kind of news. I. I don't even know. I'm still in a state of shock. Wow. Thank you. Thanks so much. Wow. We are so happy to be able to tell you that you are our winner. We're glad that we got you on the phone today. And we are making arrangements to meet you at the fabulous new home. So we're going to ask you to stay on the phone line. And thank you, okay. British Columbia. We look adorable. forward to seeing you all this It's fall. so adorable. <laughs> Mark Zappa from New West is the winner of the 2023 p e Prize Home. Congratulations, Mark. I'm sure your phone is now blowing up with a lot of people uh, congratulating you, but uh, we had ours as well. That's a big win. Five bedrooms, five and a half baths, a listening lounge, and a basement suite. So all we need to know is when's the housewarming and <laughs> what kind of plants do you like that we can bring over as a gift? Are we Congratulations. Invited. That's great stuff. All right, thanks very much. Well, cell transplants can be an effective treatment for type 1 diabetes, but the downside is a lifetime on anti-rejection drugs, which is a risk too great for some patients. Now a Canadian research team has come up with a potential solution involving special bubbles. Over the past two decades, the world-famous Edmonton Protocol for Islet Cell Transplants has reduced or eliminated the need for insulin injections for hundreds of Alberta patients with type 1 diabetes. But one major problem remains, the need for lifelong anti-rejection drugs. Just knocking down the immune system, and that's where the risks come with infections and certain cancers. Now, Dr. Andrew Pepper's U of A team has figured out a way to deliver the drugs directly to the transplanted cells themselves instead of the whole body. And they're doing it with tiny polymer bubbles. We can encapsulate the drug of interest in one of these bubbles. They're very small and we can just mix them with the cells that produce insulin and we transplant them in various places around the body. They can also change how quickly the bubbles pop to stagger delivery of the drugs. We can have them pop within 10 days or we can play around with the chemistry and about 100% of them by 30 days. 
It means patients would need just a fraction of the usual dose and more islet cells would survive. Right now, up to 70% of the transplanted cells die within the first few days. If we can make the procedure not only safer, but also more durable by protecting the cells better, we can require less pancreases per recipient. Currently, patients require cells from two or three pancreases. There is a constant shortage of organ donors. Certainly, Dr. Pepper's work is something we've all been watching. It's really exciting, uh, and we're proud to be supporting that. The Alberta Diabetes Foundation has been helping to fund Dr. Pepper's research for years. This project is especially meaningful to Executive Director Lindsay Burnham, who lost her sister Kelly to diabetes-related complications. That would have been something that would have given her some peace of mind had that have worked and would have been a much simpler option for her. I know everyone is really rooting for the work happening here. Coming up, honouring those lost on 9-11. The 22nd anniversary of an event that shocked the world, recognised here in B.C. too. And coming up in sports, Captain Hughes. Why the Canucks are giving Quinn... The sea. All right, excitement for Frank Zappa, Christy. Uh, but you're down there also <laughs> doing the weather for us. Is it? Did I say Is Frank it Mark Zappa? Zappa? I think you might have said <laughs> yeah, Frank Zappa. It's yeah, Mark it's Zappa. Mark Zappa. We were, it's Mark. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we all thought when his Sorry. name got pulled, though. We thought, ah, oh, maybe he's a relation. <laughs> I know, and my cameraman just said to me, don't say Frank Zappa, it's Mark. And I was like, okay, thanks. But you did it, Sophie, for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it was nice to have some rain today. Uh, the lucky winner will get a bit of blue sky, though, as uh, as he heard, his big, uh, heard about his big win. We're in between systems, though, and we've got another system on deck. So let's have a look at this uh, satellite image. So lucky to have the rainfall. We're in between. There's the next system that's driving onshore, and it is going to be wet and cool tomorrow, but it doesn't last long. But thankfully, some more rain for us tomorrow, and then we're going to see things surge once again. So Thursday, Friday looking warm, and we'll see that warmth in through the interior regions as well. That chance of showers that you see into next week, late weekend, sort of into next week, is still uncertain, especially for those of you in the interior. So we'll refine that as we get closer. But in the meantime, tomorrow morning, rain across the north and central coast and across Vancouver Island. The rain will develop across Metro Vancouver through the morning hours and then be on and off in the afternoon. By evening, though, we'll start to see a break and you can see the rainfall shifting in through the interior. So some great news with that rainfall, higher relative humidity, lower temperatures. It clears out, though, on Wednesday, we're expecting mainly sunny skies. Uh, as you can see here, there's lots of rain and cooler conditions expected right across the province. So highs of only 24 degrees for the southern interior uh, tomorrow. And for the coastal regions, we'll see 16 to about 18 or 19 degrees. Uh, so showers tomorrow throughout the day. Make sure you send the kids to school with a rain jacket. But we come out of it back to sunshine, as you can see. And here's tonight's central windows weather, weather window coming to you from the North Thompson River, which was right near the Kamloops area. Norman Flint sharing that beautiful <coughs> shot with us. Okay, you two, back to you. So peaceful. Thanks, Christy. Love it. Okay, here's Squire with what's coming up in sports. Okay, so Quinn Hughes is the new Canucks captain, just the third defenseman in team history to wear the C. We'll try to do my best lead by example and also be a little bit more vocal and just um, grow into the role. Quinn Hughes was chosen for the job after a 
business lunch with management and ownership last week. Also coming up, the lingering impact of 9-11, local commemorations to honour the heroes who lost their lives. <laughs> We're tight on time, but I give you permission to tell your joke. Quinn got a huge promotion. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> That's why here. you write the best material. <laughs> so when you think about it, gang... When you think about it, the name Quinn and the Vancouver Canucks has had quite a history. Pat Quinn, of course, running the team and the bench for years, nearly winning a Stanley Cup. Dan Quinn was briefly a Canucks captain, and now Quinn Hughes is the Canucks' new captain. 15th man to wear the C. Now, Hughes is a solid choice. He's one of the best defensemen in the NHL. I think he's already the Canucks' best defenseman ever. And among the other candidates, J.T. Miller... Yeah, you could have picked him, but he's a bit too animated on the ice, sometimes with his own teammates. And Elias Pettersson's future with the Canucks is not secure yet because his contract is up after this season. But Quinn Hughes is signed until the summer of 2027. And even though he's not the loudest voice, he does lead truly by example. Nobody should really be surprised it was Quinn Hughes who became the Vancouver Canucks' new captain. He's been helping teammates look better ever since he got here. In fact, in the last four years, Quinn Hughes has more assists than any defenseman in the NHL. And in some ways, we were tipped off last March that Rick Tockett thought of Quinn Hughes as captain material. For, for me, obviously, the, uh, the, the assists and what he's doing, I, I think he's just been a you know, the terrific leader. I've been here about six, seven weeks, and I, I thought he's been probably one of our best when it comes to vocal and, and just, you know, I haven't really seen a bad game out of him. And that's what you want from a captain. Somebody who doesn't take a night off. More than just being a guy who says the right thing in the dressing room, Quinn Hughes wants to be the guy who also walks the talk. Yeah, I think I will try to do my best lead by example and also be a little bit more vocal and just um, grow into the role. Um, for me, my perspective, being a good leader, I think that just being ready to play every single game, which I think I already am, and um, every practice and being here early and um, having a will to win and driving guys up the mountain, that's what I'm going to try to do. As we said, the feeling to make Quinn Hughes the captain was already there late last season, but a meeting last week sealed the deal. Francesco and his family uh, took us to lunch last week uh, with Jim and Patrick, um, with uh, uh, Quinn and his family, and um, China just kind of talked about values and principles that uh, they believe in. Um, so that was kind of kind of the start of, of, of naming the captain after that lunch. And for what it's worth, the last captain the Canucks had, Bo Horvat, said publicly that Vancouver made an excellent choice in Quinn Hughes. Yeah, it means a lot. I um, talked to Bo last night, and uh, he's a great teammate, a great person, and someone I enjoyed playing with. And... Um, he never complained about anything and just went about his business. Hughes is now just the third defenseman to be a Canucks captain, joining Doug Lidster and Kevin McCarthy. But unlike them, he is one of the best blue liners in the NHL and comfortable to add team leader to that. I think uh, what helps me um, feel real confident coming into this is uh, Jim and Patrick and um, their leadership and also the new coaching staff talk and Footer and Gonch and those guys and Yosi and having the trust I have in them that I do. And then, um, like I said, the leadership group that's here and supporting me and 
not only supporting me, but the, the message and everything that we're trying to do as a leadership group. Um, so I feel real confident. I feel like there's a great stability and everyone knows what to expect. New York Jet fans know the pain, the heartbreak. Tonight, Aaron Rodgers, first game for the Jets and four plays in. He does something to his ankle or maybe his Achilles or something because that's it. He was out of the game at that point and he's not coming back. And the last time they saw him, he had a walking boot on. They aren't saying what caused or what the injury is yet, but he is out of the game. If it's an Achilles, he could be out the season. Okay, because a lot of teams keep their key players from playing much or at all in the preseason out of fear of injury, which is understandable. But because of that, quarterbacks and offenses in the NFL are often rusty right out of the gate. They're out of sync. They're vulnerable to good defensive schemes. A lot of big names were bad yesterday on opening Sunday in the NFL, and that included Seahawks quarterback Geno Smith and all the Hawks. Despite a decent start to their game with the Rams, Seattle lost 30-13. They were booed off the field by the 12s. The Seahawks' second half was a tragedy, and Geno Smith says you can put a lot of the blame on him. To say that, you know, as always, you can put that put that on me. You know, it's my job to make sure we're ready, that we're always prepared, we're always competing. And uh, I just feel like we didn't do that uh, to the best of our ability in the second half. And, and so, um, you know, I'm surprised. Yes, I am. You know, I didn't I didn't expect to come out and, and, uh, and, and lose at all, let alone in this fashion. And so we got to figure out how to get better from this. And uh, we got 16 opportunities to go out there and right this wrong. I think Gino wanted to do the helmet toss and then thought better of it. Yeah, he did. All right, thanks, Squire. Up next, a 9-11 commemoration noting the sacrifices first responders made and continue to make to keep us safe. Memorials are being held across the United States to commemorate those who lost their lives in the 9-11 terror attack it killed nearly 3,000 Americans. Vice President Kamala Harris was one of many in attendance at the ceremony taking place at the Memorial Plaza in New York. Family members read out the names of those who lost their lives that day 22 years ago. Six moments of silence were observed throughout the ceremony. One for when each of the World Trade Center towers were struck and fell and the times of the attack on the Pentagon and the crash of Flight 93 in Pennsylvania. Nearby, the Bell of Hope rang out at St. Paul's Chapel to mark the moment when the first two planes hit the Twin Towers. That was followed by a prayer service. And in Kelowna, firefighters from all over the central Okanagan gathered at the base of Knox Mountain for a commemorative ceremony to honor the first responders who lost their lives at Ground Zero. But as Claudia Van Emmerich reports, this year's event also paid special tribute to local firefighters who've been on the front lines during the wildfire season. A large contingent of firefighters from across the central Okanagan marches in honor of fallen comrades. More than 300 of them killed on this day 22 years ago in the terrorist attacks in New York City. Those people all went to work that morning uh, like it was just another day and uh, put their lives on the line to, to rescue others. Today, let's take the time to remember and honour those who we've lost over the years. Those in attendance pausing for a moment of silence. 
Among them, John Martin, a retired captain from the Toronto Fire Service who now lives in the Okanagan. When the second plane hit the second tower, uh, it was like a, a huge reality check that this is not in the movies. This is a real event. We went into lockdown right away in Toronto. Some members of the public getting emotional talking about the events of September 11, 2001. 9-11 was dramatic and these guys do a fantastic job and I break down, I'm sorry. Every year we lose more and more firefighters in the line of duty and first responders and so that is what the main event of this event is for is just to recognize the first responders who risk their lives every day. As firefighters made their way up the mountain, their counterparts who never came home back in 01, never far from their minds. Just kind of think of what those guys went through back on that day. So add a little bit of perspective and you got to keep it in the back of your mind that those guys are really going through it and a lot of them didn't come out of it alive. Their efforts and heroism though never forgotten. Claudia Van Emmer, Global News, Kelowna. Appreciate the work they do and, and continue to do mm -hmm. for us. All right. Um, not Mark Frank, Zappa. Mark Zappa of New Westminster. <laughs> that's, Any for relation? The blooper, that's for the blooper tape. Yeah. Any relation? I caught it, though. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know yet, but he sure has a nice house. If, you know, if he's got any Zappa relatives who want to come stay. <laughs> Dweezil Zappa. Zappa? Moon yeah. Unit Zappa? Yeah. Moon Unit, yeah. Good names. Well, congratulations, Mark, and thanks very much, everybody, for watching. Have a great night.